This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> okay. Okay, Chris, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. So, we'll just carry on, I suppose, from there, and we'll go into the meditation. And it's really nice to chant the Metta Sutta, because it sets you in the right mood, it sets you in the right kind of mind frame. You want to be kind to everyone, you want to have compassion for the world, you want to do all the right things. And of course, if your heart and mind are set 
in that direction, in a direction which is positive, where you feel good about yourself, you feel good about other people, you feel a general sense of ease and happiness, that is where meditation really can take off. And I think in many ways, the, actually the establishing of the mind, the setting up of the mind at the beginning of meditation practice uh, is actually one of the most important things that we can do. And uh, whatever way you do that, uh, yeah, whether it's by chanting the Metta Sutta or by just doing a, a recollection of compassion uh, for the world or just maybe an appreciation of all the good things in your life, yeah, maybe a bit of gratitude, wow, you know, here I am. I got the Dhamma, I got the Buddha, I got all these Kalyanamittas helping out. You know, it's just amazing. How, how come I'm so lucky here? Most people in the world don't have this sort of profound spiritual path to practice. Wow, then really get into this idea of a sense of gratitude for the Triple Gem, the idea that we have things that are so positive. So setting up the mind at the beginning is so incredibly important for successful meditation practice. If you feel a bit you know, a bit upset about something, or you feel a bit restless, or you feel maybe a bit down for something has happened, I would normally recommend you not to sit in meditation straight away. Because if you do that, you find that the mind just isn't ready. It's very hard to collect the mind, very hard to be present, very hard to be mindful. All of those things come with those good qualities. When the mind feels at ease, relaxed, positive, uh, all of these uh, qualities are established in the mind. Uh, so one of the um, things that uh, you know, the Buddha always talks about in the suttas uh, is that before you can really meditate, you need to establish mindfulness. And this idea that we need to establish mindfulness before we go to meditation is such an important thing to really get right. Uh, because if you try to do the meditation without establishing mindfulness, uh, Basically, it's going to be impossible. Not only is it going to be impossible, it's going to be unpleasant because you're going to have to force the mind onto the breath or force the mind to have compassion or force the mind onto whatever because the mind isn't really ready for those things. So I would really recommend you to always keep this in mind, especially at the beginning of meditation, how to allow the mindfulness to arise. And one of those very important ways of doing that is what I just said before, establishing the mind in the right place, making sure that you have a kind of a positive framework when you sit down, or as positive as you can, not worse than what you normally have. That's a very important part of it. But another very important part of this is to learn to have the right kind of attitude in regard to what is happening here. And uh, this is, uh, and I'm not talking broader than just a positive attitude, uh, and this is what it is all about when the Buddha talks in uh, some of the suttas about the, the uh, process of meditation. One of those amazing things that he says is that you should use no willpower in meditation. You should use no will. You shouldn't have any intentions. You shouldn't really try, really, in meditation practice. Uh, and it's such a powerful teaching because it goes so much against the grain. Uh, Everything we do in the world, everything that we kind of try to produce or make something, usually comes from willpower. It comes from this uh, uh, doer inside of us, yeah, the creative will to move on or to achieve something or to go somewhere. Yeah. And this is why meditation is so uh, 
almost like subversive in a sense, subversive because it goes against the grain, it goes against the normal way of thinking about the world. So what does it mean to be able to sit back and do nothing? What does it actually mean? And to even understand what this means is very difficult for many people. And the reason why it is hard, because as soon as you sit down, you think, I'm going to meditate. <laughs> and of course, meditation is something. Meditation is a goal. Meditation is something you want to do. And because as soon as you think the word meditation, you think doing, you think activity, you think using the will to achieve something in the mind. So sometimes it's good to just chuck away, chuck out some of those labels, chuck out the label meditation practice altogether and instead think of it as just peace or calm or even better perhaps, relaxation. Relaxation is very useful because relaxation is almost the opposite of willpower. If you're really relaxed, really at ease, you don't actually use any willpower at all. So often try some new words to describe what you're doing. Try words that just relaxation or being at ease, yeah, for example, is another beautiful idea of being at ease. Yeah? Being at ease means, wow, okay, just watching the sunset, watching the sky, not doing anything, just enjoying what is there. Being at ease usually means no will, no doing, no activity. It can mean a little bit of activity, but very easeful kind of activity. And so, to be able to understand how to do this, what I often recommend is I often use the simile of the armchair. Yeah, and this is the idea that uh, what I think most of us will be familiar with uh, is the idea when you have been to work and you've been working really hard for a whole day and you have been exerting yourself and you have been using the willpower. Sometimes you do things that you may not enjoy 100%. Yeah, that's kind of how work often is. And because you don't enjoy it 100%, you have to literally force yourself to do it, at least to some extent. And then when you come back home after doing this for a whole day, you are tired. Yeah? Sometimes you may be completely exhausted. And so what do you do when you are exhausted after a long day's, long day's work? Well, what you may do, yeah, people may do different things, but one thing that I think many people do is find the most comfortable chair, yeah, I don't know if it's a beanbag or an armchair or whatever is your preference, and you just sit back, yeah, and when you sit back to rest after a long day's work, what do you do? And of course, the answer is you don't do anything, right, because you're just resting. So that mind state that you have at the time when you're resting in an armchair after a long day's work, that is the kind of mind state you want to have in meditation practice. You want to just sit back and allow everything to be here. Yeah, when you come back after a long day's work, you sit down in your favorite armchair, you just allow things to flow, right? You just allow the mind to do whatever it wants to do, because as soon as you try to control the mind, you're adding fuel to the problem that is already there. You're making it worse. So this idea of just allowing the mind to flow, yeah, like sitting in that armchair, and you allow the mind just to work itself out. And of course, the weird thing about that is if you do that, after doing that for maybe just 10 minutes, yeah, 15 minutes, whatever it is, you actually feel energized again. The energy returns. It is as if the mind is able to unload. It's as if the mind is able to uh, let go of all the burdens during the day and energy starts to return to the mind. 
So we should try something similar in meditation practice. Yeah? The idea of just relaxing, yeah? of just sitting back, yeah? not doing anything at all. Yeah? And as you do that, as you just allow the world to kind of unfold and roll on in your mind uh, in this way, uh, actually the energy starts to come back into the mind again. Uh, and as you do that, if you keep on doing that, uh, you actually, eventually, mindfulness itself will become established. Uh, so this is, uh, to me, a very useful kind of uh, uh, metaphor or simile for the way that meditation actually works. Uh, another way of thinking about it is just like watching a sunset. Yeah? When you watch a sunset, uh, you don't really do anything. Uh, but the kind of the nice thing about watching a sunset is that because it is attractive, uh, you still focus on it. Yeah? You can focus even though you're not actually doing anything here. Uh. And this is what meditation should really be about. Meditation should be about being able to uh, focus without actually using the mind, without using willpower. Uh. And this is why the sunset kind of metaphor is actually quite nice. Uh. So you do this, yeah, you kind of allow the mind to calm down. That is the first part. The second part, as the mind starts to calm down, is to learn to enjoy whatever is happening. Yeah, this is such an important part. If you don't enjoy the meditation, if you're kind of enjoying more the thinking mind and all of these kind of things, well actually then it may also not work. The mind may just continue to think. So as the mind calms down, you start to feel the calming down. You start to enjoy it. You start to enjoy the peace that is starting to arise. Yeah? You start to enjoy the lack of burdens that you're having at that particular time. And as you start to enjoy the meditation practice in this way, together with the relaxation, gradually mindfulness starts to arise. And then when mindfulness arises, when you feel a degree of clarity in the mind, you feel that you are ready for basically meditation proper, if you want to call it that, that is when the breath arises in your mind, the breath sort of comes to you, and when the breath comes to you in this way, that is when really the meditation starts. Anyway, so these are some of the skillful means that I use in my own meditation just to help myself. And so check it out if you like it, use it. If you don't like it, then it's entirely up to you what you want to do. But uh, let's do some uh, meditation together and see what happens. Okay. <clears throat> okay, everyone, so make sure that you are nice and comfortable and uh, that comfort can sometimes mean that you uh, sit on a chair or even if you sit on the floor it can sometimes mean that you sit against the wall. Uh, sometimes it's nice to be able to lean back yeah, because when you lean back yeah, you can relax much more profoundly. Yeah. And as I've been talking about all the time just now the idea of being in an armchair yeah, well, if you want to be in an armchair, you need to rest your back against something. Otherwise, that relaxation may not actually happen. It also helps you to establish the perception of an armchair if you sit in a similar kind of position by resting. As your mind becomes more clear later on, then you can straighten the body more if it feels right to you. 
So again, uh, sit down, uh, relax, uh, and then just gradually allow the world to fade away in your mind. Uh. And please take a lot of time at the beginning uh, just to allow everything to calm down completely naturally. Uh, just sit back and wait. Uh, wait and observe what is going on. Uh, and just allow things to kind of unravel by themselves. Uh, slowly, slowly the mind calms down. Uh. And uh, if you find that the breath is there from the very beginning, uh, just leave it to one side for now. Uh, just allow the breath to be like in the background uh, while you just wait for things to calm down. Uh, don't worry about the breath yet. Uh, only when you reach a certain degree of clarity uh, do you allow the breath to arise. Uh.
And just keep watching, just being aware of this spectacle of the mind kind of running on empty here, just emptying itself out. All the perceptions, all the images that you have loaded up throughout the day are now just coming back to you. Allow it to empty out. And there comes a point gradually when the mind lets go of these things. So just wait, be patient and allow that mindfulness to come about by itself. And uh, as the mind calms down and becomes more tranquil, uh, try to recognize the positive attributes of that. Uh, recognize what it feels like. Uh, feel that sense of being unburdened. Uh, feel the sense of what it feels like to be rather than to do. Uh, feel the lack of doing uh, is actually such a beautiful relief in this life. Uh, 
Feel the sense of peace that is starting to arise within her. Feel the sense that the world is so much more delightful when you sit back and just be rather than do. And as you start to see this, the mind will incline more in the same direction.
And uh, there may come a point in the meditation uh, when your mindfulness starts to feel stronger and when the breath kind of appears by itself. Uh, then when the breath comes to you in this way, uh, you are already doing mindfulness of breathing. Uh, don't grasp on to that breath. Uh, don't hold it, uh, but allow it to be uh, in the same way as you were just watching your mind from the armchair. Uh, stay in that armchair. Uh, allow the breath to be without holding. Uh, and then the breath will come and go as it pleases, uh, gradually uh, becoming more mindful with the breath. Uh.
Okay, so coming close to the end, uh, as usual, spend a few moments just towards the end, uh, just reviewing your meditation. Uh, ask yourself, what are the things that makes the meditation work? What are the things that detract from the meditation? Uh, So uh, now let us uh, uh, carry on. I'm going to give a little bit of a talk. Uh, just uh, yeah. So the the talk I was thinking about, uh, talking about the thing I was going to talk about today, was one of the lines from the Metta Sutta, or around one of those lines. Uh, and uh, you may have noticed if you've been around for a while that uh, one of the lines there says. Uh, not holding to fixed views. Yeah, and <laughs> that is already a little bit controversial because you probably heard that some of the monks don't uh, 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 chant it in that way. Ajahn Brahm tends to uh, chant not holding to false views, uh, but this actually says fixed views. Yeah, so, what, so one of the questions that is interesting is, well, which one is right? Is it not holding to false views uh, or is it not holding to fixed views? Uh, what is actually the right way of thinking about this. And this gets us into the whole idea of views in Buddhism, what views are about, how we should think about views. And the whole idea of not holding to fixed views, is that even possible? This is one of the questions that we want to talk about. Because if it isn't possible, then maybe we need another framework for this idea of views, how to think about views, if you like, and then to uh, develop maybe views in the right way, etc., etc. Now, as you, all of you would know, you know that the idea of right view is at the very beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah? So obviously the idea of right view is significant. Yeah? I mean, it's there at the very beginning. It must be very important in one way or another. And if you look at the structure of the Noble Eightfold Path, it is quite obvious why that must be the case. Yeah? Because once you have right view, once you kind of perceive the world in the right way, according to the way the world is, or if you like, according to the way the Buddha uh, uh, taught about the world, uh, then of course you start to change your priorities. What is important in your life starts to change, uh, because you're seeing things more clearly here. Uh, you're understanding about, more about happiness and suffering. Uh, you have a more uh, idea about actually uh, the, the reality of this world, which is often kind of hidden behind a veil. The veil, uh, this is one of the expressions from the suttas, the veil in the world, yeah? The veil which kind of just makes it diffuse and hard to see what is actually going on. Uh, we want to draw back that veil, and when you draw back the veil, you get more clarity about what is happening. Uh, 
That changes your direction. When your direction changes, well, then all the rest of the noble eightfold path comes out of that idea of right view, right intention, etc. So as a foundation for the whole path, it's actually tremendously important. And straight away we understand that, well, if it is so important, then how does that fit with this idea of not holding to fixed views? Shouldn't, doesn't this mean that we should have certain views? And if we should have certain views, isn't there quite likely to be a certain amount of holding or grasping in that idea? And uh, as we shall see, the, the, uh, it basically the answer to that question is basically yes, because uh, uh, the problem is that as human beings, it is impossible not to have views. Views are part and parcel of who we are as human beings. And if we have to have views, well, then we have to choose the views that are useful. Yeah? So if views are an essential part of being a human being, at least we can kind of incline towards having useful views instead of having kind of random views or views that are bad or views that lead to detriment for ourselves and others or whatever it might be. Let's have views that actually are useful. And this idea that um, having views is fundamental to what it means to be a human being, uh, this is very obvious once you start to understand some of the ideas that are expressed in the suttas. Uh, yeah? And uh, for example, in the sequence on dependent origination in the suttas, you have, uh, you have in the middle there you have feeling. Uh, from the feeling you have craving arises. Uh, from craving arising, you have grasping arising. Yeah? Grasping is one of the factors of dependent origination. And you can see how this works. Yeah? Because you feel, because we feel we have pleasure and pain, of course we want more pleasure, we want less pain. And from that, craving must arise as a consequence. And once you have craving, well then you want to hold on to things in the world. You want to hold on to those things that give, satisfies that craving. Yeah, whatever satisfies the craving in the world, these are things you will grasp, you will cling to, or you will take up as a matter of how you live your life, because that satisfies the cravings. And one of the interesting things about this idea of grasping or clinging in Buddhism, it has four components according to dependent origination. Yeah, there's the grasping to... Uh, what you might call precepts and vows, sometimes called rites and rituals, but actually it's a very bad translation. Precepts and vows is a much better translation. Uh, there is the uh, uh, grasping to, uh, 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 to views. Yeah, this is the one I really want to talk about, the grasping to views. Uh, then there's the grasping to doctrines of a self. Yeah, so this is the, uh, the third one. Uh, and so you can see here the idea of views is actually very significant there. Doctrines of self and the grasping of views are a fundamental aspect of this idea of grasping to things. And what is so interesting about this sequence, and I think I have mentioned this here before, is that the grasping of views arises out of feeling. You feel, then you crave, and then you grasp views. So the views that we tend to hold in the world, they we, do, we hold those views because it feels good to us. Yeah? Isn't that kind of fascinating? I find this is so kind of radical because usually as human beings we're kind of proud of our views. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the right way. We think that we are rational beings. We think that our views are right because you've thought it all out. You've figured out what is the right way and yes, this is right. So I'm going to hold on to this. 
But actually the Buddha says, no, the reality why we have certain views is because they feel good to us. Yeah? It feels right. And because it feels right, you tend to grasp onto certain things. And that is kind of enough to get a bit disappointed or a bit kind of less interested in views, right? They come from feeling. What do you mean they come from feeling? It makes them less interesting straight away. Why do you, you know, vote for a particular party? It's because it feels good to you. <laughs> and that sort of diminishes this whole uh, you know, seriousness with which we take politics uh, because you start to understand that actually it is so, so random sometimes the things that we actually think of as important or not important. Uh, it depends on factors that are completely different from what we think they are. Uh. Now one of the, um, some of the most important views uh, in Buddhism are the views about uh, who we are, yeah? who we are as human beings, etc. These are very, very important things. Uh, and these are some of the views that are very, uh, you know, kind of drive the way that we think about life and especially the spiritual path. They become very important on the spiritual path. Uh, and uh, this is like, for example, if you are, uh, if you have a view that there is a creator God, uh, yeah, God started the universe and when you die, you go to God and you hang out with the God until the rest of eternity. Uh, yeah, so some people think that's a good idea. Personally, I don't think it's a good idea, but some people think it's a good idea. And so, okay, fair enough. So why do people normally have this kind of view? Yeah, and if you start to analyze where that view comes from, you start to realize that actually that view feels good to you. Yeah, the idea that there is a God there, well, first of all, it feels good because it's like you have a protector in the world, right? Someone who looks after you, especially if it is like a personal God who kind of looks after you and makes sure that you're okay in the world. Yes, that feels good in that way. It's like having a big mummy or a big daddy who kind of looks after you, makes sure that you are fine. And of course, this is kind of the scary thing about growing up. You have to let go of your parents and then you're all on your own. Well, it's nice to have an alternative parent, yeah? That can be like God, for example. Or maybe you are, you believe in God because your parents believed in God. You kind of follow just what they did before and that feels good to you because it is the family inheritance, if you like. Or it could be that you are a rebellious kind of character. You want to go against your parents. It feels good to believe in God because your parents were atheists. Yeah, your parents were blooming atheists. Like, I'm going to believe in God, yeah, because that is the right way forward. But um, the most important reason why people do believe in God is because it justifies the sense of self that we have. Yeah, we have a sense of self within, and that sense of self usually wants to survive in one way or another. So we believe in God because then afterwards you hang out with God yeah, when you die. And so you believe in this God and then you hope that this will actually transform somehow into eternal life in a very happy state of being or whatever that might be. Yeah. So we believe in God because it feels good. It feels like we are, you know, kind of our sense of self almost demands this and we don't really look at things very clearly. So the point I'm trying to make here is simply that views are a natural expression of our humanity. It is impossible to be a human being without having views. Yeah? Each one of us is going to have views. It is an expression of the ego, an expression of our sense of self. Yeah? It's part of views. Even simple views like which football team is the best yeah? or Aussie rules football team or whatever it might be. All of these things come back to these kind of things. The sense of self needs these things as a crutch, as a sense of identity to actually create a 
uh, a feeling of who we are as human beings. Uh, so views are really non-negotiable. Uh, you're going to have to have views. Uh, and so then the question is, well, if we have to have views, uh, then what can we do about it? Uh, and what we can do about it, instead of just accepting that there are these kind of views in the world, the views that we have, uh, we can start to recognize that certain views are far more useful for our happiness, for our well-being, than other views. And as we start to recognize that, and of course the main views that we're talking about here are the views that the Buddha taught. How to look at the world, how to think about our lives. These are the significant things. So we want to start to turn our views around, align them with the way the Buddha talk, talked about the world, and then there is a chance that actually our views will start to be beneficial to us rather than just being random views that are conditioned into us through society, through our family, through our feelings or whatever it might be. So it means that we start to understand the idea of developing views, of changing views, of moving our views in a different direction. So it may be true that we have no choice, that we have to grasp onto views. There is no choice in that, but there is the possibility of changing the kind of views that really are important to us and that actually matter. And that is really the interesting point here. So uh, what does this mean in practice? And what it means in practice is that we uh, start to think of the, the very, some of the very simple, basic things in life, right? The Buddha, when he talks about right view, one of the kind of very basic things that he talks about is the view that our actions matter, uh, that our happiness depends on how we live our life. Uh, the idea that morality is important, that kindness is important, that generosity is important, compassion is important, understanding things is important. Yeah? The simple things of morality are actually very, very important. This is kind of the beginning, if you like, of right view. And that's why this is at the start of the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, and then morality after that. So, <clears throat> right? So, just being moral requires right view. If all of you, if you didn't have right view to some degree, you would be immoral people. You wouldn't care about being here part of the Armadale meditation group because you think it's nonsense. These Armadaleans, they're wasting their time being kind and nice and all these kind of crazy things. You know, who wants to do that? That's kind of probably maybe how you would have thought about things. So the fact that you're already inclining on the spiritual path, inclining in the right direction, means that you already have some degree of right view. But don't be satisfied with that. That is not the end of the story. Being a truly moral and kind human being is actually quite demanding. So to be able to be more kind and moral, purify that view even further. Ask yourself, how can I, understand, how can I think about morality even more deeply? How can I uh, purify this view that morality is important even more so as to make it even more powerful in my life. Uh, yeah? So reflect on the idea of morality. Uh, see how morality and kindness, see how it affects you as a person. Uh, yeah? See what the Buddha has to say, the consequences of immorality or bad conduct in the long run especially. Uh, what does it mean if you have an idea of rebirth? What does it mean if you are immoral now? How does that affect your, the outcomes in the future lives? All of these things yeah, are 
kind of integrate it into the idea of morality, reflect on them, bring them together, make it a powerful understanding of why morality is important. And the more powerful that understanding is, the more likely you are to be moral all the time, never to let the opportunity go by to do something kind and to avoid doing something bad. Take every opportunity. That is how important it is. Make that mindfulness about kindness so strong. Yeah, this is the kindfulness that Ajahn Ram speaks, speaks about. Make it so powerful, so strong, that it's always at the back of your mind. You never forget about it. Moment after moment after moment. One person to another person. You always have this as the guiding light in your mind. And I heard a story. I, this was not so long ago. I don't know if I have told this story here before. Maybe I have. I can't remember. But this was a, a, a story of a lady that who is a very good spiritual practitioner. She stayed here at the monastery not so long ago, two or three months ago or something. And she told a story that I thought was very fascinating about the idea of morality and how important it is. And she had an experience that was essentially a near-death experience. She had some very big problems, some health problems. She had epilepsy or and some serious asthma attacks and these kind of things. And she said that one day she got a seizure and the seizure was so strong yeah, that she kind of fell out of her bed and she was kind of rolling on the floor and her whole body kind of seized up. And because the whole body seized up, she couldn't breathe anymore. And of course, if you can't breathe, well, it won't take too long before you pass out and then eventually you die. And so she said that as she was lying there on the floor in this kind of uh, fetal kind of posture or whatever, she couldn't move, she couldn't do anything. Yeah. She said that she thought she was going to die. Yeah, this was the end of it. She couldn't breathe. If you can't breathe, you're going to die. But then, as she thought that she was going to die, she had a moment of regret. She was thinking back on her life and she realized there are a few things that I have done in my life that I need to sort out first of all. I'm not really ready to die yet. I need to sort these things out. And this is a lady who is an extremely good-hearted person with very, very high you know, virtue in her life. She's a very impressive meditator. She has really got things going for her. But she said there is this little thing, this small kind of remorse. I'm not ready to die. And so upon that memory, upon that understanding that she was not ready to die, she started very slowly to be able to draw her breath again. Stage by stage, gradually filling up her lungs and then gradually coming back to breathing. And after about half an hour or so, she was back to normal again. But she said that this was such a powerful experience for her because it reminded her that even the smallest things in life, even the tiny things that we do and that we get wrong, they leave an imprint on the mind. And when the time comes to die, it is going to be there. You're going to have remorse. You're going to have regret because of those things. So she said that this near-death experience for her was so powerful that after this experience, she was no longer able to do anything bad. She had to do good things. Why? Because her view had changed. Her understanding of the world was now different. She looked upon morality in an entirely new way. And for each one of us, we should try something similar to that. We should try to understand morality from this Kind of, you stand back and you understand the consequences of the bad actions. Every time you make a mistake, you're letting yourself down. 
You may be letting other people down, but that's a small, that's a small thing, right? You're letting yourself down. Every time you take a step backwards because you're making a mistake in your moral life, you actually have, you're making a big problem for yourself and stopping yourself from moving forward and enjoying this beautiful spiritual path. So this is one idea of right view. And remember, it is a matter of development, developing these right views. Right view is not something that you either have or you don't have. You really have to develop these things. You have to reflect on these issues to really understand why they are important. It's a simple thing. Most people think that, yes, I understand morality. I understand why I have to live well. But how deep does it really go? Can you make it go even deeper? Can you understand it to the point that is so profound that you never ever make a mistake again in your entire life? That is really the ideal here. That is the bar. You want to set the bar really high. And the reason we want to set the bar high is because we want to make as much progress as we possibly can on the spiritual path. So this is the idea of morality. And I find it so fascinating that all of these things are supported by right view. Then there is the idea which comes after morality, and that of course has to do with meditation practice, yeah, right view in regard to meditation practice. And I have mentioned many times before that it is a idea of right view is a direct input in meditation. Yeah, it says in the suttas, the word of the Buddha, he says that meditation practice is founded on two things on morality or kindness, if you like, and on the other hand, on right view. Yeah? It's this right view that basically is about where you find happiness and where you find suffering. To me, this is one of those very beautiful understandings of right view, understanding the difference between happiness and suffering and where to find them. Once you understand where you find them, well, then you can lean the mind in the right direction. And for the vast majority of people in the world, they have no idea that there is a realm of the mind. And that realm of the mind is also, of course, reflected in kind of the potential for rebirth and these kind of things. So it's actually broader than just the realm of the mind. It has to do with the uh, Buddhist ideas, if you like, cosmological ideas or whatever you want to call it in Buddhism. And so we don't even know that that realm exists. Yeah, this realm of the mind where there's peace, where there's potential bliss, where there's the potential for life-changing experiences that give you access to the meaning of life, that give you access to an understanding that is way beyond what anyone else in the world can ever will normally have access to. So this is the other aspect of right view, and this is something much more difficult than the idea of morality, because it's much more difficult to access. And for those of you who already have some experience in meditation, and you already know a little bit about what is available on the Buddhist path, wonderful, because it means that you have access to something that has helped to shape your view. And because your view has been shaped, and your view is kind of already on the right track, it means that you will be leaning in the right direction. For those who haven't had any deep experience in meditation, well, we have to go more on the idea of confidence in the word of the Buddha. Yeah? Having confidence that there is something in the world more profound, more interesting than our ordinary lives and, and the ordinary things that go on in the world. 
So contemplating these things, uh, listening to the Dhamma, understanding how the Buddha teaches meditation practice, uh, listening to people who are like meditation masters and spiritual teachers uh, who have an understanding to shape your life, to understand that there is something very powerful and interesting to be had on the spiritual path. Uh, this is such an important aspect of the idea of right view. Uh, and as you do that, you start to shift. You start to shift what is really interesting for you. You start to understand the limitations of ordinary life and the profundity that is accessible for people who practice in the right way on the spiritual path. This is what really the spiritual path is about, accessing some of these beautiful, profound states that actually are available to any human being if they live in the right way. It's a very important part of right view. Don't underestimate that. Uh, reflect on that. Uh, try to understand what it is all about. Uh. And then the final idea of right view is, of course, the uh, very profound aspects of right view that come with uh, uh, insights, uh, the understanding of non-self, uh, the understanding of the profound impermanence of all phenomena. And uh, this is also sometimes useful to reflect on a little bit. Uh, because even though this is very profound and it's very hard to kind of gain that full insight straight away, we can take baby steps in that direction. Yeah, just whenever we remember the impermanence of the world, whenever we see that things are out of control, whether inside our own mind or externally, and as we develop that idea of things being out of control, of the world always being changing, we're actually moving a little bit towards this idea of non-self. Because self implies control, non-self implies out of control. That is what we are gradually, gradually moving towards. So, please develop the ideas of right view in your life. Because as you develop right view, that whole thing will be strengthened. Yeah? Gradually, gradually strengthen itself. And you are grasping on, still grasping onto views in a certain degree. But you are now grasping onto views that are important, that will be useful, that actually will take you forward on that particular spiritual path. And that is going to be very, very useful for you. And uh, then uh, there comes a time, and this is what is interesting, there comes a time when the path really, really comes together. This is kind of way down the track, of course, uh, but when the path comes together in a very powerful way. Uh, and that is when you become dittipatto. Uh, and dittipatto means attained to view. Uh, yeah? And that is the point on the path where you, be, you, you uh, see the teaching of the Buddha fully. Uh, you understand what the Buddha was talking about. Uh, and at that point, uh, you don't have any doubt anymore about right view. You know what right view is, is about. Uh, and at that point, that is when you stop grasping at views. Uh, and that is what the Metta Sutta is talking about. Uh, the Metta Sutta is not something, it's not a prescription for how to practice uh, at this point. Uh, the Metta Sutta at that point describes what happens when you have a very profound insight into reality. Because you have seen that reality, you don't need to grasp anymore. Yeah? The person who has attained profound insight into nature knows the nature of reality, and because they know it, there is no grasping. It is just pure knowledge of what is going on. And that is what this really means. So when the suttas talk about not grasping, and this happens in many different places, about not grasping to right views for someone who has profound insight, 
it actually has nothing to do with not caring about views. It has nothing to do with not having views. You have view. You have a view. You have a, a, a outlook on reality. In fact, you have the same outlook on reality as the Buddha had, but because you know the truth, you don't grasp anymore, and so you let it go, and you still, but you still have that particular kind of right view. So this is kind of the meaning here of right view. You develop it, you grasp it to some extent, until eventually you have that full insight, and then you can let go of all the grasping. Yeah. So, um, to make all of this work, uh, one, of the, uh, you know, one of the things I kind of maybe talk about, just a couple of more minutes because we have a bit more time uh, up our sleeve, uh, so one of the uh, uh, things that is very interesting in the suttas that I always thought was very fascinating, but I think which is often underestimated, uh, and this is one of the things when the Buddha talks about the development of perceptions. Uh, yeah, when the Buddha talks about the development of perceptions, uh, essentially what he's talking about is the development of right view. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, uh, because when you develop your perception, in the direction of the Dhamma to align your ideas with the way the Buddha taught, well then your view is also changing here, because your view depends on your perceptions. And what you perceive is what you think, and then what you think is also your views. So your views get aligned. And there's a large number of these perceptions in the suttas. And as you develop these perceptions in your own life, you start to actually, your views fall in line with the way the Buddha was teaching here. So some of these perceptions is uh, related to what I was talking about before, yeah, the idea of understanding why morality is important, uh, an understanding of the world of the mind uh, that goes beyond the ordinary world. Uh, so these are part of that. Uh, but other aspects are also very important. Uh, and one of the kind of very important perceptions the Buddha talk, talks about, uh, well, one of them is the marana sanya, the perception of death. Uh, yeah? And the perception of death uh, just by doing the perception of death in your own way, it will have a powerful effect on all of these other things that we're talking about now. It will remind you of your own mortality, it will remind you what really is important in life, and it will kind of guide you in the right direction as a consequence. Another important perception is the perception of impermanence, yeah? of the unreliability of all things in the world. And this perception of impermanence is one of the perceptions the Buddha talks about a lot in the suttas. And that almost includes the perception of death within it, which is kind of fascinating. But things are always changing. There's nothing we can really hold on to. And as you start to see that, you start to move your mind towards the spiritual path, towards those things that we can hold on to at least a little bit more, which is the goodness of your heart, which is the development of your mind that you can take with you into the future. Another interesting perception that I have always found very fascinating is a perception called the Sambhaloke Anabirati Sanya, which is the perception of non-delight in the whole world. Yeah, non-delight in the whole world. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that you start to see the flaws in the world. You start to see how this idea that we're always making progress towards some kind of goal itself may not be true. Maybe we're not going anywhere at all. Maybe there is no end point to these things that we're doing. Maybe there is no perfect society here. Maybe there is no kind of stable social structure that we can rely on and lean back on so as to feel relaxed and at ease in this world. And this is what the Buddha says, there is no such thing. 
And of course, when you look at the world, that is what it starts to feel like a little bit, the way the world is going right now. Things kind of going in waves, going back and forth. So you start to feel the sense of non-delight in the whole world. You start to reject it a little bit more. And as you do that, you move more onto the spiritual path as a consequence. And there's a large number of other perceptions as well that we can use yeah, in, the, uh, in our practice. One of them is actually the perception of the breath. Yeah, perceiving the breath when we do the anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, that is also a kind of perception. We're dealing with the breath in the good way. And we need to learn how to look at the breath in such a way that the breath is delightful and beautiful. And as you do all of these kind of things, doing it together, and these are things that you can do in your daily life, yeah? development perceptions of impermanence and dying, is something we can do almost all the time because they are around us. We can learn from the world around us to kind of allow us to develop these kind of perceptions. So this is uh, what I, you know, one of the aspects of the spiritual path, uh, gradually seeing the world more straight, uh, developing the view in the right way. Uh, and as you do that, uh, this will be a very powerful uh, influence on your practice uh, because what you are essentially doing is you are building up the very first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, very often we underestimate some of the most important things on the path. Uh, and the first factor of right view is so important, uh, but I think not talked about enough, not really understood uh, what it actually means. Uh, it does not mean very profound things initially. Initially, right view means very simple things, uh, very basic things that can drive you in the right way. Uh, and then you're going to have something which develops very powerfully over time. Uh, and I guarantee you will make much more progress on the path uh, as a consequence. Uh, all right, I'm not going to say anything more there, so, but I would like to give you all a chance to ask some questions or comment or uh, uh, whatever you wish. Does anyone like to say anything about this particular yes. subject? Yes, John, we do have a question in the chat from uh, one of our members who cannot be with us this evening yeah. and who's been now for, I think, a year, maybe two years. Yeah. Um, he asked you, please, uh, about observing the breath, uh, the in and out breath and meditation. When sensing an unwholesome mind state, do we turn towards the breath in the same way as in formal meditation? Is this mindfulness of body? Is this right effort? Okay, so... When you have an unwholesome state arising during meditation practice, there's a number of things that you can do. And it really depends on, uh, uh, depends on your mind state, depends on uh, the strength of your mindfulness, depends on many, many factors what is going to be the most efficient way of dealing with that. Uh, but one of the ways of dealing with that is simply to just uh, come back to the breath uh, and then kind of not pay attention to that mind state. Uh, and if you stay with the breath, you don't have to pay attention to it, uh, then gradually it will tend to fade away and go into the background. So this is certainly one way of doing it. And that is, as you say, that is right effort to do it that way. And this is specifically taught by the Buddha. This particular technique is taught in a sutta called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, which is about the calming of the thinking mind. Yeah? So just go back to the breath or stay with the breath and allow kind of that to fade away. It's called not paying attention to that negative mind state. This is one way of doing it. Another way of doing it, and most 
powerful way of overcoming negative mind states is actually not necessarily this way, but the most powerful way is to turn to some other aspect of that object that you are observing. So say that you are getting upset about something in your meditation. Let's say that you remember a person who treated you badly during the day or whatever. Yeah? Then what you can do is you can remind yourself of the good qualities in that person very quickly. Yeah? You know that that person has other sides to their personality. You know that that person maybe needs compassion because they're having many difficulties in, in, your, in their life. So very quickly, if, you have, if your mindfulness is strong enough, you can just turn from seeing the negative qualities of that person to seeing the good qualities or having compassion for them. And in an instant, the whole thing can disappear if your mind is really, really powerful. Yeah? So this is what I would recommend as the most powerful way. Negative image coming up, remember the compassion, remember the good sides of that person and it will disappear. Another way that the Buddha talks about, also from the same sutta, is the idea of remembering the downsides of those negative qualities. Yeah? Seeing the bad qualities, having ill will, it has very powerful negative consequences both for you and for the other person. And if you have made that perception strong, and this is another aspect of right view, again, we're coming back to this idea of right view again. If you have developed this perception of the danger in bad thoughts, yeah, that is strong. It means you have an aspect of right view. You can turn that around just like that, remembering how dangerous it is, and it's gone just like that. And then comes this idea of not paying attention that you were talking about, which is fine. If that works for you, it's good. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a couple of more ways, but I think those are the most important ones. Uh, Well, I th thank you, Ajahn. Thank you very much for your answer. Is there anyone else who would like to either unmute themselves and ask a question or to pop a question into the chat? Questions uh, are welcome on meditation practice or on Ajahn's talk this evening. Yeah. Okay. Yes, we have uh, yeah. Jennifer. Jennifer, would you like to unmute and go ahead? Yes, um, yeah, actually, I, um, Ajahn Brahmali, um, I have a non-Dharma question. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> I'm actually coming for the three months spring retreat. Um, but the thing is, after the three months is up, there's usually a nine-day um, retreat at Jana Grove by the Singaporean group, isn't it? Yes. And my auntie, yeah, yeah, yeah. my elderly auntie is quite keen to attend. Yeah. It's usually organized by Bodhinyana Singapore, but it, I heard rumors that it's been cancelled. I'm just wondering whether Ajahn Brahmani, you can um, confirm that? I, I can neither confirm nor disconfirm. I have no idea what's going, what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so I actually no idea. So unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, you have to go, okay. go to the higher powers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are actually quite involved in the nine-day retreat as far as Sutta's concerned too, isn't it? But it's quite far away, I suppose. Yeah, it's still far away, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. Okay, okay. yeah. I'll just um, go to the higher power. <laughs> Good, yeah, that's, that's the way to. Thank you so yeah. much. Excellent, yeah. Lovely talk, I love that, yeah. I, I really enjoy the fact that you talk about view because I, I realised that a lot of people, although they try to um, improve the practice, it doesn't seem to work 
very well. It's like there's blockage here and there. Yeah. And as um, sometimes I, I, I too struggle and then but the thing is once the view has been rectified, it's like wow. Yeah. The, the, the car is still in the right direction. Right, so yeah, I, yeah. I, I really yeah. like the talk. Thank you so much. Adrian. Good, excellent. Thank you for that feedback. Yeah, that's great. There's another lady down there, Chris. Gloria, Gloria Wong wanted to ask something. Yeah. Gloria, that's Gloria. Yeah. Would you yeah. like to unmute and ask a question as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my question is around like, sensual restraints. So, oh, I heard that sensual restraint is, uh, is part of the virtual. And I never consider sensual restraint in that way because, in my view, everything that is not addiction is and it's not harming other people is kind of allowable. Yeah. But yes, um, and I want to ask about, so in developing sensual restraint, is that similar to the views that you do in meditation, which is that you just like, you don't use your view at all to do it. And you just allow yourself to gradually, I don't know how to say, to gradually diminish the, the kind of sensual, the sensual pleasures that you take in. Because I kind of like, I, I think like you live in modern society, you, you kind of have to use some of the will to restrain your senses. But I think the Buddha talked about enlightenment as a like natural process. Yeah. And it, yeah, and then I just wondering whether you should right. like approach sensual restraint in the same like attitude or not. Yeah, so, so uh, sense restraint is, um, there's many aspects to this and it kind of, uh, but the, you know, the initial sense restraint is just kind of being kind, you know. If you are kind, if you live well, if you live a moral life, uh, that's already going to take some restraint because you cannot just enjoy yourself, you can't do whatever you want. Kindness implies a degree of restraint. So already there, you are already restraining yourself to some extent. And sometimes that is enough, you know, if you can be really, really kind in a very deep way, then you probably already have enough sense restraint to, to practice the path well, yeah? But that is actually what really, really matters. But the idea of, of sense restraint is really the idea that you want to have an even mind, yeah, in life. You don't want to be kind of buffeted around by aversion and desire all the time. Suddenly the mind gets desire, you get really excited about something, you get aversion, oh no, can't bear, can't bear that, or whatever it is. And the mind is kind of yo-yoed back and forth, this kind of, you know, up and down kind of thing. And that is not very pleasant, and it means that you lose your mindfulness, it means that you lose your ability to react to the next thing that comes up. Because the next thing that comes up, because if you are addicted to desire and thinking about things, it's hard to then react in the right way to the next thing that comes up. So um, this is why we want to have some kind of sense so you can have an even mind that knows how to deal with the world in the best possible way. So how can we have sense restraint? And the answer is that uh, uh, very often using willpower is not going to be very effective. Far better to use wisdom power. And the way to use wisdom power when it comes to sense restraint is to Remember, yeah, one of the main things has to do with upset and ill will and anger and these kind of things. And so how to deal with anger, right? To know in a deep way, to have the tools ready to deal with an issue when you can see anger is about to arise. Yeah? So you know anger is about, okay, it's about this person. But actually, 
this person, even though they are stupid, even though they're doing bad things, even though they're mistreating me, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. They are blind. They are deluded. They are clueless. How can I get angry with a, with a foolish person who has been conditioned in a bad way? They're just like a robot. You know, and so you start to understand kind of where, what human beings really are. And when you understand what human beings are, the only natural response is compassion towards those human beings. And this is how you use wisdom power instead. But you can see that this wisdom power depends on right view, right? Right view is to see human beings in the right way. And this is why this whole talk about developing right view, seeing things in the right way, is so incredibly important because it permeates our entire spiritual practice. Seeing people in the right way helps you with sense restraint. It helps you with morality. It helps you with appreciating meditation. It helps you with absolutely everything. And that is the ideal way of having sense restraint. Thank you, Gloria. Uh, Ajahn, we've had uh, over 40 people here online this evening, and yeah. over half of them are from all over the world. Yeah. And we've joined, I'm sure, in thanking you. Um, we do actually have another question. Would you have time for another one? Sure, yeah. Uh, we have a question here. Could you tell us about the qualities of the monks, Kimbala and Nandija? Aha. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's a very specific question. So, so these were these were the friends of Venerable Anuruddha. Yeah, the three monks, Kimbila and uh, Nandiya and Anuruddha, they lived together in India. They were in the same monastery and they practiced together. And not only did they practice together, but they practiced together to the point where they all became arahants. They all became fully enlightened, right? So these are very, very inspiring monastics, and the way that you they are described in the suttas, they're described as these three monks who live together and they're blending like milk and water, right? Blending like milk and water. Milk and water mixes completely. The opposite is, is water and oil. Water and oil doesn't mix, but milk and water mixes. And so the blending and the working together is beautifully described in the suttas, how they're working together. If you want to have a look at that, you go to the middle-length sayings of the Buddha and you go to sutta number 128, the Upakilesa Sutta, and it's all described there, how they actually were living together with each other. And so they say things like, you know, we blend like milk and water, we look upon each other with kindly eyes. Yeah, I, we set aside what I want to do, and I do what the other venerables want to do, right? And so it's this beautiful expression of loving kindness between three monks, of compassion. And the remarkable thing is that that is what the sutta talks about. It talks only about that. And based on that, they attain the jhana states, and then they attain the full enlightenment experience. And so the idea here is that if you, if you practice morality fully, including the morality of the mind, compassion, loving-kindness, all of these things, that in itself is sufficient to take you all the way to awakening. The critical aspect on the Buddhist path is morality. If you take the morality to its full extent, yeah, full kind of human possibility, then basically you have uh, the path fulfilled as a consequence. All right. Well, well done. Uh, I think we've reached that time. Uh, uh, on behalf of everyone here, I'd like to say thank you. And 
ask you if you would, uh, if I could prevail on you to offer a blessing. Of a blessing, okay. Uh, offer a blessing, all right. So, uh, I... <laughs> I guess for goodness sake, the sake of goodness. For sake of, yeah. Okay. Well, what, what we should really do is we should pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Do you normally do that? Or, or do you just uh, do a blessing? Or what do you do? Huh? Well, we, we've, been, we've been finishing with the blessing uh, for our last few seconds. Okay. okay. I, I, I'm, gonna ch I'm the boss, you know, so I can I'm going to change things. Uh, yeah? So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being naughty. So I'm gonna, we're going to pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So I'm going to, I'll do a little bit of chanting and you can just kind of follow along as, as you like. Yeah. All right? Okay. So here we go. Arahang Sama Sambuddho Bhagava Buddhang Bhagavantang Abhivademi Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipanno Bhagavato Savaka Sango Sangang Namami And that is also the blessing, because bowing down to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is a great blessing, Chris. So there you are, both in one, two, two, two in one kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Very really good. Okay. Okay. Have a, have a, have a nice evening. Goodbye, everyone.